we've been uh, going through the, the book of Acts, and I want to welcome all of you who have come this morning as we continue in our study in the book of Acts. Some, some Bibles will call the book of Acts the Acts of the Apostles, but I think we have um, clarified that in the title of our lessons, that, that it's not the apostles that are doing the work or the acts, but the enabling of the Holy Spirit has empowered the apostles and us to be God's messengers. Um, last week we heard of the story of uh, the account of, of Paul uh, preaching in Thessalonica, and then in Thessalonica the, the Jewish leaders of the time became jealous, and so they came and they began to persecute him and he then went to Berea and then in Berea they followed him there and then from Berea um, he was sent on his way to wait in Athens for um, Silas and Timothy to come. And so today's passage actually comes at a time when you would say it's almost an accidental experience for Paul to be in Athens. It doesn't seem like it was a planned part of the missionary trip But he's in Athens, and some things happen, and um, he's given an opportunity to speak. And so he does. So um, let's read together from our text. Um, It's on page 926. It's the 17th chapter of Acts, the remainder of the chapter that we didn't read last week, beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing some new thing. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God that made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like a god of, or like gold or silver or stone 
an image formed by the art or imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man that he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined to him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. As... uh, we consider Paul's situation in Athens and the, the accidental time that he spent there. You have to imagine him going around the city. And Athens is, Athens is an interesting study for us because we see even the relics of what existed in Paul's time today. Some of the temples, some of the, some of the uh, relics that were there still exist. And there's quite a bit of history to tell us what was going on there. And the description of this story is a, is a real good snapshot of that city. They had lots of different ideas. They had, um, they had um, a, what we would call a pluralistic view of religion and, and intellectualism so that there was, um, there was a, a marketplace, if you will, of different ideas. And... Paul observed that, of course. He could have passed his time simply by waiting for Silas and Timothy to come. He could have studied the Old Testament scriptures. He could have prepared for the intentional part of the missionary journey where they were about to head to Corinth. But he, he was moved. There was something that motivated him not to just wait, not to just prepare for something in the future, but his spirit was moved within him. And that motivation for talking about Jesus was, was probably because of two things. When we see that the world around us is not worshiping God, but is worshiping other gods, or is involved in in all kinds of activities to find significance, to find fulfillment, then it it probably ought to move us as well. But Paul's motivation or moving by the spirit within him, um, probably not the Holy Spirit, but his just his human spirit was disturbed by the fact that they were not worshiping the true God. That's the first travesty of the the worship of idols is that the true God does not get the worship that's due to him. But the second part of that is that the worshipers are not saved by that experience. And yet they might think they are. They might think that it is somewhat of a, of a satisfying experience. They might think that they're, they're approaching the truth and coming near to the truth. But sadly... They're deceived. It's in many ways as if they're taking a placebo that um, maybe will pacify them, maybe will make them feel okay, but doesn't solve the problem. So 
at least those two things would have been in Paul's mind as he wanted to discuss with the people about their, their um, worship and the idols that were all around them. So he went, he went to the synagogue, and, and we begin to see a pattern in his methods. Um, we, we see a lot of things around us that are anti the true God. They're, they're everywhere. They're in, they're in entertainment. They're in the arts. They're in lifestyles. They're in all kinds of things that we could say, these are the worship of something other than God, other than the true God. And so there can be a motivation within us that comes from God, seeing the travesty of that. And so we might say, well, we should tear down those idols. We don't want those idols to be there for people to be attracted to them and and be deceived by them. And so that motivation might come to us. And and we could even point to some of the prophets as being the, the ones that tore down idols. But I think the context of, of those situations is a little different than Athens. And if we think about it, I think it's different than our context too. Now, if our objective really is to introduce the people we talk to to the true God, we ought to consider our methods. And we ought to consider what's the best way to do that. Is it to attack what they worship? Or is it to show them the true God? So Paul went to the synagogues. There he would find the people that believed in Jehovah, but didn't know that the Messiah had come. So he would be talking to people that had a little bit of a foundation, or maybe a lot of a foundation, not not a little bit. And then he went to the marketplace. And in the marketplace, he talked with everyone, anyone who would listen. And there he encountered the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans and the Stoics would... Uh, we, we can even read about their, their um, philosophy today, and we can study it, and, and it might sound a little bit familiar to us. I, I was walking through the grocery store yesterday, and I saw that there's a line of kitchen utensils called the Epicurean. And I don't know if it has a connection to the philosophy at all, but the philosophy of the Epicureans was that pleasure was the highest purpose of man, to seek pleasure. And they had a, they had a, a, a developed view of pleasure and what that meant. And then the Stoics, and the word we use for a a Stoic personality comes from the Stoic philosophy, which was to deny ourselves the the expressions of emotion, that those were actually uh, diminishing our purpose and that we we should rise to the level of, of avoiding emotion and to have a intellectual experience and have a a purity of morality and and intellect. And so those were two extremes. Those were in opposition of each other. They were debating those things. But as as they're debating those things and as they talk to Paul in the marketplace, they they hear him telling about something different. And they recognize that his view of God is different than theirs, different than Epicurean Stoics and, uh, and anything else they had in Athens. So they thought it was foreign and it was strange. And so they, they said, um, we want to hear what this babbler has to say. And it reminded me of, of when year, years ago, I used to sometimes have nightmares. I used to have a responsibility to, to 
preach regularly, and I, I, I literally had nightmares about that. And the nightmare would go something like this, that I would be in front of people, and I would forget everything I was supposed to say, and I would be standing there, and it would be, it would be just a matter of silence and awkwardness and nothing to say, and I would sit down. And it would be done. And, and I thought, well, these poor people, they came to hear something significant and they didn't hear anything. And I remember sharing that with my kids, though, although they, they all deny that they said this, but I, I shared it with one of my kids and they said, wow, Dad, that's amazing. I, I have almost the same dream. You'll be standing in front of the group and you'll have nothing to say. But my story's a little different because you can just keep talking. <laughs> and that would be an expression similar to what the Athenians had, that we want to hear what this babbler has to say. And so to avoid that, I want to use what Paul did, and, I, and I'm, I'm certainly not trying to compare myself to Paul, but Paul, when he was talking to the Athenians, he, we're, we're going to find out that he used their own um, their own philosophy, he used their own art, their poets, he quoted their poets and pointed to their, their form of worship to connect with them. And he, he recognized in that that the one who had created them had left his fingerprints on them. And he was acknowledging that truths that they would articulate in their art or their poems or how they did things in their beliefs were God's truths. God's truth is, is owned. In, in, let me say it a different way. God owns all truth. And so what is revealed to humanity by whatever means it is revealed, God can take ownership of that. It, like the, the quote on the back of, our, our, um, of the bulletin this morning points to that. Um, I didn't bring one up here, but Abraham Kuyper says there's no, there is no part of all of creation that God does not declare definitively it is mine. And that's a weak paraphrase of some profound quote, but you can read it for yourself and and hear that he is affirming that God has declared that all creation is his. And so in that, he has ownership of all the Athenians. He has ownership of the minds and the hearts of the Athenians. So that is a part of Paul's method is to bring them to a, a discussion, a reasonable discussion, not a hostile, not a destructive discussion, but a reasonable discussion to get to them through their minds, pointing to the fact that God has put in them some longings that they're expressing in what they do and in their poetry and in their art. So, now, let's, let's look specifically at what Paul did say through that method. What, what was his message? He starts out by saying, I recognized among your objects of worship that you had something that you, that you had an altar that you made for the unknown God. And then he, he, takes, uh, he takes a big step to say to them, this is the one I am about to tell you about. This one that you know exists or you acknowledge exists, but you don't know I am here to tell you about him. So 
hopefully that would mean they would pique their interest and they would think, well, okay, I want to know what I don't know, so tell me this. And then he, he goes to immediately to the, the biggest picture he can. He says, the God who made heaven and earth and all that is in them, this is the one I'm telling you about. But then he says something about that God. He does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed something. So he's telling them, this is the great God who made everything, and I am contrasting him with the gods that you have seen and that are created by men's hands. He, it, we, we would see the shadows of very specific truths from the Old Testament in everything he says. So that he doesn't just go rogue as, as a, a, a human and say, I'm going to give them my philosophy. They won't believe the Bible, so I'm going to give them my philosophy. He doesn't do that at all. Actually, everything he says, you can specifically point to in an Old Testament passage. Creation is in Genesis chapter 1, and the idea of uh, God not dwelling in temples made with, made with hands is he could be quoting uh, Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple, that he has limited our habitation. He could be quoting Psalm 139, that you, you, you set, uh, you hem me in behind and before. He, he could be using scripture to support all that he says. So he is not leaping away from scriptural truth, but he acknowledges that he's talking to people that don't recognize the authority of scripture. So he is still under the authority of scripture. He's still bound by what scripture says, and he still builds on what scripture says, but he does it in the context of their language and their culture. Because They would have no regard for Scripture. It wouldn't mean anything if he said to them, just as Moses said, or just as Solomon said when he dedicated the temple. So he he is articulating the truths that he knows are solid in a language that the people would understand. So he's making a claim to be explaining the great God who does not live in temples and is not needing anything from us. So he's contrasting the true God with those idols by saying the idols are needy and in some sense greedy. And in in a way, you are trying to impress them and you seek their approval and you seek their blessing by what you do. That is not the God I'm talking about. I'm talking about a God who has already given. And he is the great giver. He gives to all life and breath and everything. And so he gave already. You're not worshiping to get something. You're worshiping in response to what he gave. And that comes not from an obligation or not from a desire to get, but it comes from an overflow of what has been given. And so that, that picture is opposite of what they're used to an opposite of that, that sense of, of always working from a deficit, always, always trying to get what we need from some divine being that we think might stingily parcel it out if I impress him with what I do. So that's the difference between the true God and those idols. That's one difference. He's the God of all history. He... He, from one man, and we could go back to the Tower of Babel and the distribution by the languages, but he doesn't do that again. He, he says he made from one man all nations. And he set 
their boundaries and their times. He limited them. He contained them. And then he makes a statement that implies a will on the part of God to affect his creation, to affect even them, even the Athenians, even us, when he says that they might seek after him and perchance might feel after him and find him. So God's limitation, the disappointments of how far we can go, how long we can live, how long a nation exists, how far the geography of a nation can go, that is an intentional limit of God with a purpose of God in mind. And the purpose of God being that we will be left knowing there's something more, knowing there's something more that we want out of life, knowing there's something more that we want out of our existence so that we are like the poet or like the the altar maker who says to the unknown God and like the poet that acknowledges we are all his offspring but doesn't know how that works out. And then he says, though he is not far from any one of us, for in him we all live and move and have our being. So this great God who made everything, limited the the expanse of the nations, limited the duration of those nations, he actually is not far from you at this very moment. What an amazing news to hear. What what amazing uh, uh, declaration Paul was making to the Athenians. He's not far from you. He says, since then, we're talking about, I'm talking about explaining to you the God who made everything. It just doesn't make sense that the one who made us could be made by us. See, those were acts that were done in ignorance. You didn't know better. You didn't know the true God. He was indeed the unknown God. And in that ignorance, God overlooked those, those things that you did. God overlooked our failures. But it's not always going to be that way. Because he set a time, a point in the future, that he will judge the world by the man who he has appointed as that judge. And he has confirmed that appointment by raising him from the dead. Now, unfortunately, Paul has given them what we would call the bad news, right? Judgment is coming, and you are not ready. He is coming to judge the world in righteous judgment by the one who he has appointed because he raised him from the dead to confirm that. And then they said, they started to mock. Some mocked when they heard about the resurrection, and some said, we'll hear about this some other time. And then some actually did cling to him. But he was cut off from that. Uh, from continuing that story, from continuing his speech. It's not, it's not clear how formal this was. There was no, there's no evidence that he was actually persecuted, but he was, he was uh, limited to, to stop speaking. He, he couldn't keep talking. So whatever formal court this was at, uh, at the Areopagus on the hill in Athens, that it, it, it was loose enough that they weren't about to it doesn't seem like beat him up or put him in jail, but they didn't want to hear anymore. They just stopped. 
I don't want to listen to this. I'm, I'm, it's silly. You're talking about resurrection. I don't believe that. But if he would have gone on, we could assume he would have said something like what he wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 3, that the righteous judge is coming and you're not ready for him. You're like Belshazzar at the feast who, who didn't understand that the one in whose hands his breath was is the one that he should be worshiping and you have not worshiped him and you are weighed in the balances and found wanting. But he would have continued on and said, but now a righteousness from God has appeared apart from works, which is the righteousness that we have by faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He would have said, I think it's very clear that he would have given them the gospel. He wasn't just to give them the bad news, the diagnosis that you're going to die and there's a judgment coming, but that there's a remedy. So he, he was stopped before he could conclude that. So hopefully in other conversations and in the marketplace, that true remedy, that salvation message came out. So that's as far as the speech went. That's as far as the story goes. But what does it mean for us? How, how can this apply to us in Akron, Ohio? Well, hopefully it's not too much of a stretch to see that Athens in the first century has some similarity to Akron in the 21st century. That the ideas and the idols and the worship and the things going on around us are not so far from what was happening in Paul's day. The people were seeking a God they did not know. People are seeking a God they do not know, creating gods out of everything they can, bowing before those gods, worshiping them, finding that something still leaves them with a longing in their soul. You can hear it in their songs. You can see it in the art. You can see it in the movies. You can see it in what is produced by this generation, by this society. That, yeah, there's a testimony that the fingerprint of God is not just on the people of Athens, but the fingerprint of God as the creator of man is on the hearts of the people that we know in our workplace, that we know in our neighborhood, that we know in the entertainment industry that, that God has made them. And as Augustine said, he has made us for himself. And our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. So with that as the testimony of the world, we ought to be like Paul. And I would suggest that we don't want to try immediately to tear down those altars but we want to try to show them the true God. That we don't want to be confronting them and, and telling them um, immediately that, that everything they do and everything they believe is wrong, but that we want to present to them and draw out of them, out of their experiences, the items that are true the experiences that are true. And, the, and the, that'll happen. That'll come up naturally. That'll come up when a coworker has a, a loved one pass away unexpectedly or when even an expression of, of beauty happens. I, did you see the sunset last night? Oh, it was beautiful. Those things point to the, the evidence in our heart that we long for something greater. 
that we acknowledge something greater, that there's a glory in life, that there's a glory in our existence that points to a creator who had a purpose. And so that's the application for us as believers. But I I will assume that in a group like this, that there might be someone who's on the other side of that. And so I would speak to you today. And I would try to do what Paul did. And I would say, in your life, is there a testimony? Just, I'm asking you to ask yourself this. I'm asking you, will you, will you ask the questions that Paul presented in this speech? Will you ask, does it make sense that maybe, what if, what if there is a God who made everything? What if he created all that you have and gave you everything and does sustain you and gives you life and breath and everything? And what if he has limited experiences in your life and the things that you call disappointments are actually the grace of God being exercised in your life to make you long for him, to make you seek after him so that perchance you might find him. And what if it is true that he has an appointment with you or you have an appointment with him, that it is fixed at a day in the future and without him, you have no way to endure that, that judgment. You have no way to stand before the great righteous judge. And what if the part that Paul didn't get to say in this place, but said in others, is also true, that Jesus Christ actually did come and actually did willingly give up his life so that by the atonement of his perfect life, by faith, you can have his perfect righteousness. What if then all the pain, all the struggles, all the disappointments in your life have led you to the point where you are forced to consider, is this the answer? Is this true? Is he really that close at this very moment? I'm, I'm thankful that not all the poets are unaware of the true God. I am thankful for the eloquence of the gifted poets that speak for God. And one of those that, that I, who I, I, I love to listen to is Laura Story. And if you know her story, her, her experience, then you know that it came out of her pain as well. But out of the pain of her life, she wrote a song called Blessings. And just at the end of it, she asked that same question. What if? What if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if my greatest disappointments or the achings of this life is the revealing of a greater thirst this world can't satisfy? And what if the trials of this life, the rain, the storms, the hardest nights, are your mercies in disguise? Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that you have come and are near. We thank you that you have recorded for us the experience of 
the early church and that, that the, the answer to a society that seeks fulfillment and, and seeks um, answers from other places and makes idols out of everything are recorded for us. We thank you for the pattern and for the, and for the wisdom that is displayed in this pattern. We pray for hearts that are ready and willing to engage this world, to engage this culture, and to do it with love and compassion, with the desire to introduce those that don't know you to you, to bring to them the greatest news they can possibly hear. We're thankful for the things in our lives as individuals that have limited us, that have disappointed us, but have pointed us to you, that have made us to realize that we are mortal and we, we are unable to do all that we want, but leave us longing for more, leave us longing for you. So increase our longing and increase our awareness of the Savior who fulfills our longing. Help us to crave him more, to seek him more, and to embrace him more, that we can be ambassadors for you in this world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.